0: sit at ease and listen, and mostly on Monday night, the talks are reminders. They're not so much something that you don't know, but quite the opposite, something that you know really well, and uh, maybe it's just a little bit of a support for that inner wisdom for the one who knows in you. So last week, for those who were here... I talked about the quality of listening and mindful attention, especially within our own breath and body, our feelings and thoughts. And this week, I'd like to speak about extending that quality of listening uh, from the attention to our own breath and body to the breath and body that we share together. And I'd like to speak in particular about what in the Buddhist teachings or tradition is called the Bodhisattva, um, which when one originally hears about it, Bodhisattva is an archetype or an image or an ideal of a way to live in the form of service and care for oneself and others. When one initially hears like it, it can hears it. It can sound a little bit like a, a burden. Oh, now I have to be a bodhisattva, and help everybody or something like that. And on the wall over here, to your left, is a, is one of my favorite images of a bodhisattva. This is the feminine form of Avalokiteshvara, who is the bodhisattva of infinite compassion, and she has a thousand arms and a thousand hands and a thousand sets of eyes to see all the needs and difficulties and struggles of the world and to to extend herself to be of support to them. My daughter, when she was little, came over here and counted them to make sure there were really a thousand on there, (laughs) and there are. Um, um, But what's important to understand about the Bodhisattva as we begin to reflect is that the bodhisattva isn't meant to be some kind of grim duty. You know, okay, now here's your next spiritual assignment. You became a meditator even for an hour tonight, you know, and now it's time to become a bodhisattva. Um, It's really an expression of happiness and an expression of a deep sense of joy and connectedness with the world that brings us happiness. Now, over the years of spiritual practice, for those of you who've been engaged in some uh, form of spiritual practices, many of us have, um, discover that it's not really linear. Um, you don't go from here to there. Actually, as someone said, you go from there to here, if you're lucky, <laughs> right? Um, but Ramdas years ago, in Be Here Now, wrote, Spiritual practice is a bit like a roller coaster. Each new high is usually followed by a new low. (laughs) Understanding this makes it a bit easier to ride with all the phases. There is, in addition to the up and down cycle, an in and out cycle. That is, there are stages at which you feel pulled into inner work and all you seek is a quiet place to meditate and get on with it. And then there are times when you turn outward and seek to be involved in the marketplace. Both of these parts of the cycle are part of one's spiritual life, for what happens to you in the marketplace helps to deepen your meditation, and what happens to you in meditation helps you to participate in the marketplace with wisdom and compassion without attachment. At first you might think of practice as a limited part of your life, in time you realize that everything you do is part of your spiritual practice. We live in a society and a culture that tends to divide things. There's the spiritual time, you know, at a meditation center or church or mosque or temple or something, and there's time for the body in the gym, right? And there's time for business in the marketplace and um, politics, I don't know where that fits, <laughs> sorry to say, but it's pretty far from the spiritual life. Um, and the compartments um, create tremendous suffering. They create economic injustice. They create um, division within our own bodies. Um, they create wars and racism and um It's easy to fall into them, especially because the way we tend to think in the modern world is so easily divided. But what happens when we come and begin to sit in meditation is that the compartments begin to fall away. Because here you're sitting, taking your seat like the Buddha, halfway between heaven and earth, and your relationship comes up. And the image that you saw of Darfur, or of our, you know, traffic jams and you know pollution, or of the sailboat race on the bay, or the beautiful weekend that you had in you know Napa, or you know of somebody that you love um, and are close to, you know, or something in a whole other part of the world—they um, all come because they're a part of us and we're connected to them. And they start to break down the notion that we are separate from the rest. And there comes, as we settle into ourself, both a centering and a stilling, as we talked about last last week, and then a deeper and deeper capacity to live without compartments, without separating the spiritual and the, you know, The marketplace and our body and our feelings and so forth, that it becomes possible in some way to have a thread of that which is sacred or beautiful weave through what we do, not because you're supposed to or it makes you some kind of better person, but because it's true. It's so mysterious and it is sacred. This is from Thomas Merton. Um... And you know, as Thomas Merton was, uh, beside being a, a monk and contemplative, and so forth, was a, was a really wonderful uh, writer who could kind of express his understanding of the inner life and life of the heart, the way that touched many people. And he said, if you write for God, you will reach many men and women and bring them joy. And if you write for men and women, you may make some money. And you may give someone a little joy and you may make a noise in the world for a little while. And if you write for your own self-promotion, you can read what you have written and after ten minutes you'll be so disgusted you'll wish you were dead. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, really what he's talking about is the way that we approach what we do. And whether that thread of understanding, that thread of the heart that connects us all together or spirit, is alive in that. It really doesn't matter what it is. If it is, our life becomes meaningful, joyful, even though it may be difficult. And if it's not, it becomes a grim duty, if you will, in some fashion. Now, how do we integrate? Here we are sitting in meditation. That's kind of the in-breath, ah, just to kind of sit and quiet the mind, open the heart. And then the out-breath, we get up and we move out into the world. As it says in Zen, there are only two things. You sit and you sweep the garden, and it doesn't matter how big the garden is. So how do we move in the world with this thread of understanding? One of the first things that's critical is to accept the paradox of life. And the paradox means that there is praise and blame, gain and loss, pleasure and pain, joy and sorrow, fame and disrepute. Um, there are the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. And if you want to move in a sacred way through the world, it's critical to accept the, the weaving Of these energies of life otherwise you're always in conflict with the world and guess what guess who's going to (laughs) win the way things are tends to always win rather than our wishes for things so this remarkable kind of paradox that is our humanity here is Carl Jung writing about the erotic instinct you know that one right The erotic instinct is something questionable and will always be so whatever the laws of the land may have to say about the matter. It belongs on one hand to our original animal nature, which will exist as long as we have an animal body. On the other hand, it is connected with the highest forms of spirit. But it blooms only when spirit and instinct are in true harmony. If one or the other aspect is missing, then an injury occurs, or at least there's a one-sided lack of balance which slips into pathology. Too much of the animal disfigures the civilized human being. Too much culture makes for a sick animal. And you can hear the truth of it, that we, we have this amazing nature of being embodied, incarnated in this way, and have to respect it. And at the same time, we're beings of spirit. You're not just your body. But if you think you're not your body, you're also in trouble. Um, and, I mean, the paradoxes just go in every kind of dimension. Um, this is a book by Richard Strozy Heckler, who um, for a number of years, long time ago, was involved in helping lead movement and Aikido and so forth at Vipassana and insight meditation retreats. And then for a long time he worked with the military. And This is the story of training, among other things, doing trainings for the U.S. Army Special Forces. And he writes, After 20 minutes of sitting, the atmosphere in the room becomes charged with a quiet intensity. I open my eyes and look over the seated figures, Their guns are next to their Zafus. The person to my right seems especially still. He's sitting straight, motionless, alive with presence. My eye is caught by something on the black T-shirt that hugs his huge biceps and barrel chest. Printed in bone white on the front are the words over a skull and crossbone, 82nd Airborne Division, death from above. Something is wrong. People don't wear t-shirts like this at meditation retreats, I tell myself. But the person inside the t-shirt looks like someone at a meditation retreat, and he's meditating, a voice responds. And I look back, sitting quietly, 82nd Airborne Division, death from above. I have no mental file for what I see. Killing and meditation simply do not go together. And yet, in some way, what he was trying to do, whether he succeeded or not, and And as I said, I guess last week or the week before, I think it's a wonderful thing that there's some openness in the military for training in mindfulness, and I just wish it would go up the chain of command a bit, but that's a (laughs) whole other story, that we do live in this remarkable realm of paradox we go into our supermarkets and they're full of the abundance that an emperor could have only imagined in previous time and we also know the hunger that there is both globally that you know millions of children who don't have enough to eat and hungry people even within this society because it's become so stratified and we we struggle with this kind of paradox outwardly And we struggle inwardly as well. Um, How do we live caring for the things that we love and yet at the same time knowing that they don't last? Mary Oliver, wonderful poet. For years and years I struggled just to love my life. It's already a good line, isn't it? (laughs) For years and years I struggled just to love my life. And then the butterfly rose weightless in the wind don't love your life too much she said and vanished into the world and so there it is in two lines both the struggle to love one's life and then this other truth which says don't love it too much don't be too attached because it too is transient so there's something mysterious that's asked of us if we are to follow the thread of the sacred and make it alive, joyful, beautiful in our life. And that is that we have to accept the paradox and the difficulty and the sorrow, as well as the joy, the gain and the loss, the praise and the blame. And the fact of this, if, if you want to live as an awakened being, which you are, which is given to you, and the Buddhist texts remind you, O nobly born, remember your Buddha nature, your true nature. It means accepting the difficulties and the loss and the unfathomable beauty that are woven together. Now when we sit in the midst of this here we are in 2007 and there are many good things about our society and our lives and then there's really tragic things. We are as one of the former General's head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff said, we are a nation of nuclear giants and ethical infants. Another one of the paradoxes that we carry. Um, How do we bring our contemplative practice, the stillness of our meditation and the wisdom of the heart, into this world of paradox, of love and death? Well, just sitting to start with is a good beginning because it's not until we can tolerate the paradox that we can rest in the middle of it, what the Dalai Lama says, middle path, you know, the the place in the middle that is right where we are that includes joy and sorrow and, and gain and loss and keep our hearts open. It's not until we can find in ourselves refine this capacity that we can really be present for our life or another or the earth that calls to us. And once we do the invitation from the Buddhist tradition is to recognize yourself as a bodhisattva. And bodhisattva is a compound word Bodhi means awakened or opened heart and mind and sattva is being it means a being who's committed to awakening no matter what happens committed to the awakening of all beings and so often in certain Buddhist traditions Um, often the Bodhisattva vows are recited at the beginning of meditation one sits down and before meditating sentient beings are numberless I vow to bring awakening to them all that's the first of these four vows Um, desires and attachments are endless I vow to release them all the Dharma's are boundless I vow to master them all the way of the Buddha the supreme, or the way of the Buddha of enlightenment, is unsurpassed. I vow to fulfill it all. Something like that. So those are the traditional versions of the bodhisattva vows. Now, sentient beings are numberless. I vow to bring awakening to them all. If you reflect on that, that's really kind of insane, you know. I mean, it's hard enough to do in your own family, you know. In fact, almost impossible if you really tried. Even the sentient beings in your own mind don't seem to be amenable to your plans for them when you sit and meditate. So what does it mean, you know, that we're supposed to rush around the world saving as many beings as we can? I hope not. I mean, that's to set it somehow in a modern kind of context of, you know... I don't know how you would measure it in weights and measures and, you know, how many beings did you save in 2007, right, in your checklist or something like the bottom line, right? And it doesn't work that way. It's not meant to be seen in the realm of time and numbers and counting and checklists and budgets. What the Bodhisattva vow is is an inner setting of the compass of the heart. Gen Master Suzuki Hiroshi says, even if the sun should arise in the West, the Bodhisattva has only one way, which is to say that even if the world gets turned upside down, which it does in our lives at times, the way of the Bodhisattva is that of compassion and connectedness and awakening for oneself and all beings in that circumstance too. And so what it means is not doing something different or going around and trying to change things because you're now the great bodhisattva. It means setting your heart in the direction of compassion and wakefulness for your life and for every being that you touch, which is really you. I mean, there really isn't a separation. There you are in that circumstance and you're waking up together and doing it as a practice of joy, as an expression of your own freedom, an expression of happiness. Henry Moore, the great sculptor, said, the secret of life is to have a task, a vision, something you devote your entire life to. And the most important thing is, it must be something you cannot possibly do. So this is like the Bodhisattva vow. It's not something that you do, okay, you know, I graduated magna cum laude from Bodhisattva school and got really good (laughs) grades or something like that. It's not an accomplishment. It is actually an expression of how we can live. And we know this in ourselves, and we've seen it in others. So there's the acceptance of paradox and the fact of suffering and joy woven together. And without knowing this cellularly, the heart really can't open. This is the way it is here in human incarnation. Somebody find anything different? Please raise your hand. Just checking here, see if you got it straight here. And then saying, all right, in the midst of all of this, what matters? I mean, in the end, what really does matter? When you have the privilege of being with someone at the end of their life, especially if they've lived or are dying somewhat consciously, the questions are very few. (coughs) Did I love well? Maybe that. Did I give myself to life fully? Did I love well? I mean, that's about all. And then, of course, maybe, did I learn to let go? Because if you didn't at that point, then you have what's called a crash course. You sort of have to learn it all at once. But. So the vow of the bodhisattva is to say, let me make this incarnation that I've been born into something that's really beautiful. Because it's who I am. It's who we are. It's what's possible what else is helpful or necessary in the awakening of the bodhisattva to find your way to be present it's another reason that meditation taking the time to sit to quiet the mind open the heart that in-breath before the out-breath makes such a difference because it allows us to to quiet ourselves and feel that inner intention, remember it, and sense before we act or speak or whatever is given to us to do it, to, to move through the world connected to that thread of the spirit. So one of my favorite stories for a long time is about Vinoba Bhave. And Vinoba Bhave was the probably the chief Dharma successor, if you will, disciple to Mahatma Gandhi. And when Mahatma Gandhi was uh, assassinated just around the time of the founding of the Indian state and the partition of India and Pakistan, after the assassination it was such a devastating blow to his followers that the Gandhian movement in India kind of fell apart. Also at that time there was the new government and the starting of all the new things under Prime Minister Nehru and so forth and and um, people really from the Gandhi movement said "All right, we have our country and weren't quite sure what to do next. And after a couple of years or a few years had passed it became evident to the followers of Gandhi that even though some beautiful fruits had come from his work there was still a lot to be tended to in India um, from Gandhi's perspective of justice and care. So they decided to have a huge conference of all the close followers of Gandhi and this kind of reignite the spirit of Gandhi's work and they asked Vinoba Bhave if he would come and be the leader of that conference and he said no. He said, I don't want to recreate something that had already passed and died. We can't bring Gandhiji back. Um, We have to do something different. (laughs) And they said, please, please, they begged him to come. And finally he agreed, all right, I'll come if you postpone it for six months and give me time to walk there, which meant walking across half of India. So ji and some of his friends and followers started to walk from village to village across India. And in each village, they would sit under the big tree that's often in the center of an Indian village and meet with the people and just listen what's happening. And they heard the stories of what people needed and so forth. And partway through, after hearing about a lot of problems and poverty, they came to a village where there were these really poor untouchables. And the untouchable caste in India, when you think about racism and discrimination, in the worst places, it was such that an untouchable person's it was not even allowed to have their shadow cross the path of someone who was a higher caste person, or they might be stoned or killed. Not just separate drinking fountains, but separate wells and separate parts of the village, and the worst work, if any. And they were hungry. They said, we don't have any work, we don't have anything to do. And Vinoba said, well, why don't you grow your own food? And they said, well, we don't have any land. Untouchables aren't landowners. So he thought for a bit and he said, I'll tell you what, when I go back to Delhi, I'll meet with Prime Minister Nehru and we'll get the new parliament to pass a law giving land to the lowest caste of the untouchables around the country. And everyone went home happily and he went home, but he didn't sleep because he knew government too well. And he came back in the morning and he called everyone together and he said, I didn't sleep well last night because my vision was even if the laws passed, by the time it goes from the parliament to the national government and to the you know the largest states and the, the provinces and the districts and the, the sub-districts and then to the village head pe- men and so forth, by the time it gets there, even if the land is given, it, it won't get to you. And he was sitting there quite depressed and sad, not knowing what to do. And a man stood up, one of the wealthier men from the village, and said, "Um, How much land do these people need? And Vinobiji said, Well, there are 18 families in this village, 5 acres apiece. So something like 90 acres, 80 or 90 acres, for everybody um, would be enough and the man said I have land I will give in the spirit of Gandhiji out of respect for Mahatma Gandhi I will give these acres." and Vinoba said no you must go home first think about it talk to your family who will inherit your land and only if they agree then we will accept so he went back home talked to his family the next day they met again and indeed, those 80 or 90 acres were given, five acres of family. ji then walked with his party to the next village. Same kind of situation, untouchables, <coughs> people with not enough food to eat. Why don't you have land? No one will give us, we don't have. Vinoba told the story of the first village, and another man stood up and said, you know, in the name of Gandhiji, I too can do this. Um, and here are 20 families, I will offer 100 hundred acres, five acres of family. And Vinobhaji sent him back to his family and he returned and that land was given. And by the time Vinoba got to the conference, he had collected 2,800 acres of land for poor people in the villages where he had stopped by telling these stories. And that was the beginning of the Indian Bhutan Land Reform Movement. From that conference, Vinoba Bhavi and his followers walked on foot through every province and every district of India and over the course of six or eight years collected 14 million acres of land, the biggest peaceful land transfer in modern times, using the spirit of Gandhi's teaching for the poorest of the poor people in India. And all because he actually didn't know what he was going to do. He said, I don't know what to do and I don't want to repeat the past. I want to keep, if you will, a beginner's mind and just walk on foot and listen. So one of the beautiful things about the Bodhisattva, the spirit of the Bodhisattva, is this quality of presence. And the presence isn't so much that you know what you're going to do, but that you're there in a way that is open to the circumstance and can therefore respond. The scope of the Bodhisattva, says Baba, Indian teacher, is not limited to heroic acts, great gestures, huge donations to public institutions. They also offer service who express their love in little things, a word that gives courage to a broken heart, A smile that brings hope in the midst of gloom is as much an act of service as heroic sacrifice. A glance that wipes out bitterness from the heart is also service, though there may be no thought of service in it. When taken by themselves, all these things may seem to be small, but life is made up of many small things, and if these small things were ignored, life would not only be unbeautiful, it would be unbearable. So the quality of presence, of beginner's mind, of just being centered in oneself and listening allows for this sacred thread to express itself. And the spirit of the bodhisattva (coughs) is that of compassion. I remember when Kala Rinpoche, wonderful old Tibetan Lama and teacher of Bodhisattva vows, came to visit some friends of mine in Boston 35 years ago or so. And they took him to the new Boston Aquarium, which was this great big, kind of like the Monterey Bay Aquarium. It had a huge um, glass two or three story tank in the middle with all these giant sea creatures and lots of little tanks. And Kala went around through the aquarium looking at all these amazing creatures that you don't see in the mountains of Tibet, where he came from. You know, the luminous ones and the sparkly ones or whatever. And before he left every tank, partly because he couldn't read English in the signs that said, do not touch, he would tap on the glass a little bit <laughs> and go, oh, minibayum, oh, minibayum, and do this mantra. And then somebody said, Rinpoche, what are you doing? and he said oh i'm tapping on the glass to get the attentions of the being the attention of the beings within and then i'm blessing them that they too might awaken and that was just his way of kind of moving through the world <laughs> it wasn't you know glorious or fancy it was just the well-being of whoever and whatever form he happened to meet and sometimes they would be in a good circumstance and sometimes in a difficult circumstance, but you know circumstances can change. It says in the Buddhist text, karma can change like the swish of a horse's tail. You know, so it's not the circumstance, but the spirit of that being that you meet. May you too be well. May you too be blessed and awakened. May we may we do it together. Um, so there's this sense of compassion, not because you're supposed to but more like it's your relatives basically i remember you know i started with that quote from ramdas and i remember ramdas teaching and he was trying to explain to his father who had been the president a railroad president and a bank president and this kind of great kind of um businessman and so forth why he ramdas was giving away a lot of the money that was coming to him through all his teachings and talks and books and his father said, why are you giving it away? And Ramda said, well, you know, um, Uncle Harold Uncle Harold, um, came to stay with us uh, a few weeks ago. Um, and he stayed for like a week at our house. And we, you fed him and, you know, we made nice meals and we went out and did all these things with him. Did you charge him any money before he left for staying with us? And his father said, absolutely not. You know, he's my brother. Why would I charge him any money? And Ramdas said, "Well, this is exactly the point." He said, the, "The problem is that we draw our family circle too small, and in fact, um, what I've discovered in my time in India is that they're all Uncle Harold. You know, <laughs> so how can I charge them? You know. Now it doesn't mean that you can't charge. By the way, you understand this. We're we're talking here in another way, um, although you can look at your what you charge and." sort of how it serves the beings, but it's just a different spirit of realizing that we're serving one another and that there's a joy in that sense of exchange and serving one another and a happiness and a freedom and a sense of meaning that comes because our life is in service of all of life. So the quality of presence, the quality of the ability to respond, the knowing that life is painful and pleasant, and joyful and sorrowful, and it's just what we get. To be able to serve comes from the place of wisdom in us that knows this. Then the spirit of the Bodhisattva also includes simplicity. Let's see. A few years ago, writes Catherine Ingram, I was with a close woman friend in a grocery store in California. As we snaked through the aisles, we became aware of a mother with a small boy moving in the opposite direction. She barely noticed us because she was so furious at the little kid who seemed intent on pulling items off the lower shelves. And as the mother became more frustrated, she started to yell at the child and several aisles later had progressed to shaking him quite avidly. At this point, my friend spoke up. A mother of three, founder of a school, she had probably never once in her life treated a child so harshly. I expected she would give this woman a solid mother-to-mother talk about controlling herself, the effect her behavior would have on the child. Braced for the confrontation, I watched as my friend approached and said, What a beautiful little boy. How old is he? the woman answered cautiously, he's almost three. My friend went on to comment how curious he seemed and how her own three children were just like him in the grocery store, pulling things off the shelves, so interested in all the wonderful colors and packages that are designed, basically, to get you to pull them (laughs) off the shelf. He was just responding to the design, right? (laughs) He seemed so bright and intelligent, my friend said. The woman had the boy in her arms by now and a shy smile came on her face. Gently brushing his hair out of his eyes, she said, Yes, he's very smart and curious, but sometimes he wears me out. My friend responded sympathetically, Yes, they can do that. They're so full of energy. And as I walked away, I heard the mother speaking more kindly to the boy about getting home and cooking his dinner. We'll have your favorite macaroni and cheese, she told him, and smiled as they walked off. You know, it's such a tough thing, actually, if you see somebody with their kids doing something that doesn't seem right. Because if you, if you act in the wrong way and you go up and say, you shouldn't do that, you know, or whatever your judgment is, it can make it worse in a moment. You know, the minute you disappear, somebody can grab that kid and see see what you made me, what made happen to me? You know, you shamed me or you made this happen. But here was this very simple quality. What does it mean to bring the heart of the bodhisattva? This is Uncle Harold or Aunt Lois, as it turns out, or whoever it happens to be there. It's just part of the family. And whether it's in parenting or driving or working or part of the community, really, really keeping the quality of simplicity. There's no formula for it, like Vinoba. No one can tell you what you're going to find in the market or, you know, when you go back home. And it's so mysterious, our connection. I read, and I kind of want to do the scientific uh, calculation. I probably should, you know, you've got to take Avogadro's number of molecules and things like that. But what I read, if it's true, someone said... Um, What do you think the chances are that in one of your own breaths you will have one molecule of Julius Caesar's dying breath? And then this analysis said that 99 times out of 100 you'll get one of Julius Caesar's molecules in your breath because there are so many molecules in one breath and now they've had a chance to visit us all. They're really a part of us. We're not separate. So with a kind of simplicity... In each moment, we begin to listen, and that listening, as I talked about last week, is as much a mystery as anything else. My friend Rodney Smith, who ran the largest hospice in Seattle in the Northeast for a while now, runs a Dharma center there, he said um, one day he was working with an old man who was very near to death in his hospice. And the family came in that morning and they were really upset and they said, we know, it was the two children and the wife, we know our father's very near to dying just in the next days. Um, But yesterday his younger brother was killed in a car accident. And we don't know, we're in such grief about it, and we don't know whether we should tell him or whether we should just let him die peacefully. So they thought about it. Rodney didn't give them an answer. He just sort of held the space for them to consider with the heart. And finally they decided, all right, we won't tell him. We don't want to disturb him. Let him die at peace. So they went in the room, the two children, the mom and Rodney is the hospice director. And when he was quite near death and they greeted, hello, Papa, how are you doing and so forth. And then he looked at them and he said, don't you have something to tell me? And they said, what do you mean? Well, you know, my brother Julian died. And they said, well, how, how did you know? And he said, oh, I've been talking to him all night. Wow. And then he died a couple of hours later. Now, people hear these stories all the time. You know why? Because they're true. <laughs> And it's so mysterious. I mean, do you think you're this food body? Is that who you think you are? You know, who are we? How did you get into this incarnation? And so when we act with the spirit of the bodhisattva, it's really remembering who we really are. And then there comes so naturally and beautifully this connection. In one great meditation text, It says, now you can sit quietly and have realized that everything that arises is spontaneous and the world is at peace in your heart as you sit. And now there is born in you from this freedom an exceeding compassion for all those living creatures who do not understand this way of peace nor realize the essence of their own true nature. And you'll spend your life working for the sake of these others Yet all your meditations have cleansed away any idea that these others really exist separate from yourself. So again, there's this remarkable kind of paradox. And it is so mysterious. You know, if our galaxy, no, oh, excuse me, if our solar system all the way out to Pluto or who's the, what's the next planet that we don't have anymore beyond Pluto... What's, is it Chiron? Who is it? Hmm? No, it was Pluto, but beyond Pluto there was another, um, now what they're calling dwarf planet. Sedna? Hmm? Is that it? Thank you. Anyway, if we take our solar system and were to make it the size of a baseball, then do you know how far the end of our galaxy would be? If our whole solar system was the size of a baseball? New York. One baseball in the entire North American continent. That's how big our galaxy is in the you know, the North American continent and one little baseball in that. And there's billions of them. And then we take ourselves seriously. I mean that's the part. <laughs> <you know. laughs> so for the bodhisattva there comes this sense of mystery and 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 awe and beauty just in being present just in being alive just in being awake and it doesn't mean you have to be some great special person now i'm a bodhisattva and you know kind of wear that on your chest or something like that zen master Ryokan, who writes japan's favorite poet he says um, spring morning, my begging rounds are finished, I hang my bowl by the side of the Buddhist shrine to play with the children. Last year, a foolish monk. This year, no change. Right? <laughs> the first thing you discover in life is you're a fool. The last thing you discover is you're the same fool. Sometimes I think I understand everything, then I regain consciousness, right? Right. <laughs> So the sense of simplicity or the sense of mystery is that we just let ourselves see this human life that we're born into. And what do you want to do with it? Yes, you have to pay the bills in the grocery. And you have to take care of your body and tend to yourself and get enough sleep and meditate and jog it and all those things. Get it to therapy once in a while and stuff like that. That's okay. But, I mean, that's not the fundamental game of what's happening. Now, a teacher and friend that I admire greatly, a great explorer of mind, read at one point um, the Encyclopedia of world religion from cover to cover, from Ahura Mazda to Zoroaster, like you know twenty five volumes. Um, the ancient Sumerian religion and the Basque religion and the Mayan religion and, you know, the Shia and Sunni and Sufi, Muslim and everything else in between. And And I asked him, so what did you learn from that? And he said, well, he said, each of the religions I read about had millions of adherents over, in many cases, centuries. And they all had creation stories, and they all had stories about good and evil and so forth. Different ones, for that matter, different stories. And he said, and what was really clear by the end was that they were all stories that were, we were using to try to make some meaning, stories that were placed on top of the great mystery. And behind each of these stories is the reality of the present, of this mystery of life itself. So from the spirit of the bodhisattva, there comes a quality of presence and tenderness and respect for others and for ourself. There was a woman who called me from San Rafael. She was um, dying of cancer, and she was probably around my age or a little bit younger, in late 50s or so. And um, she'd sat some at Spirit Rock, and in the conversation, as I kind of learned more about her life, sat with her and her daughter. She'd been this wonderful, kind of active community person. She'd been on the school board, and she'd been on the, worked for the center of the home for the homeless, and she'd done um, all kinds of community service. And she was one of those people who loved doing it. And she had hundreds and hundreds of friends, and so forth. And she looked at me and she said, the problem right now, and she said, I know I only have a few more weeks, is that they all want to come see me, and I don't want to see them. And I said, why is that? And she said, you know, I've spent my life caring for others, and I've loved doing it, but I've neglected myself in some way. And I know I'm going to die soon, and i don't know what to do everybody wants to come and thank me and tell me how much they love me and so forth and i just want some time to be alone it's a kind of private thing you know dying it is and so we talked for a while and then we kind of crafted a letter she and i and her daughter that went out to 500 people that her daughter sent saying you know i love you all so much you are my dear friends it's been such an honor to work and collaborate together i know so many of you want to see me and and how important our relationship has been and I have a great favor to ask you my one last wish from you I've not really spent time alone and right now it seems very important that I have time to be with myself as I prepare for death please give me your prayers and blessings and the gift of solitude you understand this so it's not like the is running around saying, okay, now what do I have to do next? The school board's done. Okay, now the center for the homeless or something. Um, the circle of compassion doesn't work. It doesn't turn and it doesn't operate if there's a link missing and you know what that link is. It has to include yourself, your own body, your own limits, your own feelings, your own capacity, your own place. And when you include yourself and bring this respect for yourself, then that same thread comes as respect to others. It's like these parents who took their little you know, seven-year-old out to a restaurant um, and the waitress or six-year-old waitress came up and said, uh, what would you like for dinner to everyone, including the kid? and the little boy said well i'd like um and he started to speak and his mother said he'll have a meatloaf mashed potatoes carrots and milk um and the um no i think he first said he said i'd like I, i'd like a um i'd like a hot dog and fries and a coke and his mother said um, meatloaf mashed potatoes carrots and milk is what he'll have and the waitress looked back at him and said, um, do you want ketchup on your fries? <laughs> and walked away. And the little boy turned around to his parents and said, she thinks I'm real. <laughs> and, and it's this quality, it's so simple, that we can offer to ourselves and to one another this beautiful capacity of attention or caring and nobody can tell you how to do it. It's completely unique. In the bodhisattva literature, there's Vimala Kirti, who is this bodhisattva who decided to teach people by taking different forms. So he became a doctor, but then he decided, oh, the doctors needed to learn another way. So he became a patient and made himself seem sick and went into the hospitals to teach the doctors about compassion. You know, And then he went into the stock market or they didn't have it in those days or whatever it was, you know, and into the bars and into the into the farm fields. And he just entered into all the activities of life in a full and complete way and said, Yes, this too is a place to thread the thread of our compassion, the thread of our connectedness. He was a teacher. And in a way, teaching itself is a bodhisattva act, the school and the teachers that I know work with our children, it's the most beautiful thing. Everybody has to find their own way. And nobody can tell us. And in a certain way, it almost doesn't matter which it is. Yogis in caves doing prayers of compassion for the world have their place. Friends of mine who started the movement of the peace walking in Israel and Palestine, but to different parts of that war zone and the conflicted territory, They're known there as the silent walkers. They were followers of um, Mahagosananda, this great Cambodian (laughs) bodhisattva. And they don't say much. They just walk meditatively and remind people in the war zone that there's another way to be. Um, But then somebody else I think of just teaches school, you know, and has second graders and third graders and a wonderful way of being a bodhisattva. There's no... You know, there's nobody who can tell you. Here's a story I read just recently, but it's worth repeating. The school, a school principal loved to make sandwiches for the homeless. Several days a week when she got home from her work, when she wasn't so tired, with kind of pleasure of doing it, she'd make up some sandwiches and go down and distribute them in her neighborhood. And she didn't care if people thanked her because there were quite a few homeless in her neighborhood or sometimes they refused. She wasn't doing it because she wanted to feel special or get thanked. It just felt like that was part of her life. After some time, the local media found out about it and she became a minor celebrity in her area. And inspired by her work, other teachers and friends' colleagues began to send her money for her ministry. To their surprise, they all received their money back with the short note, that read, make your own damn sandwiches. <laughs> Rachel Remen writes about David, an internist who was a doctor and San Francisco general in the 80s during the worst period of the AIDS epidemic um, before there were any protease inhibitors and drug therapies and almost all the patients who were admitted to his service died many of them were young men quite close to his own age people whose lives touched him deeply and after a while he became almost overwhelmed by a sense of futility and felt that way for much of the last year of his service. He also was trained as a Buddhist, David, and it's been his practice to offer prayers for each of his patients. When a patient dies, even now, he lights a candle on his altar at home and keeps it burning for 49 days. For the whole time he was at the general, he prayed for each dying young man and lit a candle on his altar for them. Now, many years afterward, he speaks of this with a different sense of wonder. Perhaps the reason he was there was not what he thought. He'd expected to serve by curing and rescuing his patients. When their problems proved resistant to his modern medical expertise, he'd felt useless. But maybe he was not meant to be there to cure people. Perhaps he was there so that no one would die without someone to pray for them. Perhaps he had served every one of his patients flawlessly. And it's really not given to us to know the outcome of what we do. And in a certain way, it can't be measured. And I won't say that it doesn't matter. It does matter. But the seeds we can't always see sprout. But it's so mysterious, all this world coming out of nothingness, you know, the vast intergalactic space and the billions of stars, and the fact that even this very evening, all these words and your attention and all of this appear out of the void and they disappear, and there's nothing left. Oh, maybe a videotape, but, you know, (laughs) even that will disappear in due season, you know. Um, And what happened to yesterday and last week? And remember the year 2000 that was supposed to be a big year, right? And it's like history, right? It's back there with the pyramids and the Ice Age and the Middle Ages and stuff. It's just gone. It's back into nothing. And life keeps kind of appearing and recreating itself. And we're participants in this amazing dance, like a rainbow, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, bubble in a stream it says how will we enter this dance there is a way and each of us can find that way Um, sitting quietly as a first step returning to ourselves with all the trauma and the difficulties and things we carry, finding the place in the heart centered underneath all of that, what we most deeply love and value as we quiet the mind open the heart And then you can make your own bodhisattva vows. You can make your own thread of what will carry you in your way, what makes this life beautiful, what makes this life joyful in the midst of its sorrows and its struggles and its unbearable beauty together. And I close with the bodhisattva vows of the poet Diane Ackerman just to give you a sample so you can make your own. She writes... In the name of daybreak, and the eyelids of morning, and the wayfaring moon, and the night when it departs, I swear I will not dishonor my soul with hatred, but offer myself humbly as a guardian of nature, as a healer of misery, as a messenger of wonder, and an architect of peace. In the name of the sun and its mirrors, and the day that embraces it, and the cloud veils drawn over it, and the uttermost night, and the male and the female, and the plants bursting with seed, and the crowning seasons of the firefly and the apple, I will honor all life, wherever and in whatever form it may dwell, on earth my home, and in the mansions of the stars. So let's sit for a minute. and with the measure of joys and sorrows given to you what will you weave of this beautiful life thank you for your kind attention